Over the past year, we've leveraged Vistaprint services to help us on our mission to inspire entrepreneurs of color. They've helped us print stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats. Yes, they print just about everything. My point is, they print a lot more than just business cards. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. How was it working with your first partnership from a winemaking standpoint? It was insightful. I want to say that in the very beginning, this is something that Aaron and I had held close to the chest. We didn't tell anybody that this is what we were going to do, right? We never announced that we were going to uh, launch a wine company. But certain things, I mean, COVID happened, right? We weren't able to fly and check on things as much as possible. We experienced a product, we saw a process, and kind of when I talk about the whole process, it takes months before it is actually finished. So come 2020, Things around March, February, March, things are ready to go. And we had the intention to launch on Juneteenth of 2020, mm. right? Uh, this is a symbol, if you know about liberation of black folk, for this was our liberation from the wine industry, right? That. This was us coming and saying that we have something to say. Mm. And what was most critical about that partnership is that we wanted to be direct to consumer. Mm. So because we did not have distributors, I got to get to your doorstep. Hmm. I got to get you to experience this. Right. right? And so how you got to figure out how to get in front of us. I remember conversations with Aaron uh, where we would say, hey, I just hope we sell five bottles. I'm Bima, and on today's show, recorded live in Washington, D.C., at our Storytellers event in partnership with Vista, Terrence Lowe and Brandon Crump of Michael Lavelle Wines tells us what it's like to start a wine label that happens to be Black-owned. The Chicago-bred duo comes from blue-collar roots, raised by educators, police officers, and business managers. Now, the Shy is a city that has a legacy of Black entrepreneurs. Brandon and Terrence aren't any different. Now, never having met growing up, the illustrious Howard University brought them together, And wine? That was never the plan. Terrence had dreams of being a lobbyist, and Brandon wanted to be a sports agent. When Brandon first arrived at Howard, he immediately started throwing parties. He actually hired his first business partner, Terrence, to help him out. And when both were finished with school, Brandon worked in hospitality, and Terrence was going door-to-door as a point-of-sale salesman. But the discomfort of code-switching got to be too much. Okay, now let's be honest. How many of us grew up with boxed wine in the fridge? I definitely got to raise my hand. Well, so did Terrence, and that interest would only get more intense, leading him to want to start a wine business with his friends. And Brandon wasn't shy about getting involved, even after the global pandemic began in 2020. In our conversation ahead, Terrence and Brandon share a story about the challenges of creating a premium wine label and navigating the white-dominated industry. Chicago is one of the best cities in the world. It is a very strong black city, a lot of black community. Um, you know, one of my favorite things that I always say 
the Great Migration. Hmm. The bulk of that went to Chicago. So you have a lot of black culture, a lot of black history within that one city. A lot of different people that look alike and don't look alike, but that can share a lot of culture together. Hmm. So being raised in Chicago, it, it was the best thing in my life. You know, I say that in going to Howard. You see so much, and that not all good. You see some mm-hmm. bad. You see some struggles. Mm-hmm. And that struggle that you see in Chicago, it helps make you stronger. Mm. Chicago is a city where you, you have to succeed. There's a Chicago mentality. And if you don't do things the right way, if you don't go out and hustle, if you don't go out and make it happen, because mm-hmm. nothing's given to you in Chicago. Mm. My mom sees a retired Chicago police officer in Chicago. Uh, when she first started, I think I was eight years old, she worked in Inglewood. <laughs> My dad is a retired principal, 24 years Chicago public school. So I saw a lot of the service aspects of giving back to the community, but specifically the black community mm-hmm. in Chicago. And while seeing that and having those parents that were really going and giving so much of themselves to the black community, I also saw a lot of hustling. Hmm. <laughs> so many of my cousins. I was going to ask you, I was like, what was your exposure to maybe like business and some of that stuff? But it seemed like it was, you know, it was more on the hustling side, which is still some of those uh, skill sets translate. <laughs> I, I have an auntie that did hair. She was a beautician mm-hmm. for 30 years. Wow. And seeing her every day says grind and hustle and be able to relate and build relationships again with our community. Mm-hmm. It shows you how to get stuff done. It shows you how to get your hands dirty. You know, I didn't grow up. Neither, again, neither, neither of my parents. My father is the first person in my family to go to college. Mm. First person in my family to get a degree. My mom was the first person on her side of the family to get an AA. So I didn't grow up with parents in corporate America. I didn't grow up with parents with money. You know, it's their servants to the community. Mm. But we, my family was good. You know, we provided. We took care of each other. And again, a lot of that was from hustlers. Mm. I didn't even realize this until I got older. My grandma used to manage a bar, a, a pool <laughs> hall. So, you know, everybody in D.C. that knows me, they know me because I threw parties. Mm. And then as I get older and I, and I started hearing more of these stories about my wild grandma being in these places, I'm like, oh, this He's is like, why I'll be in a club. That was a part of this. <laughs> right, 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 right. Carrie Barnum, you put this inside of me. <laughs> so, you know, uh, a lot of the hustling. You see, yeah. you get a lot of hustle. You, you just got to make it work. You got to go and provide for your family and do right by people. Absolutely. Turns out about you. Um, you know, my upbringing, I had a lot of fun, right? Uh, my, my family did the best to protect me and keep me out of trouble, uh, regardless of whether or not I found it. <laughs> um, you know, curiosity leads you into some interesting places. Brandon talks about the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. My grandparents, I was raised by my grandparents. Okay. And so uh, my grandfather was a postman, uh, CPD police officer, worked his way up to lieutenant. Um, so I learned a lot about discipline and committing to something, an mm-hmm. ideal from him. My grandmother pressed upon us education. So she was the first person in our family to get her master's. Wow. Uh, she was a special ed coordinator for Chicago Public Schools. So one thing that I, I think, when I think about my makeup, um, I didn't go to school in my immediate neighborhood. So I grew up in How Wild. come? Uh, so if you know anything about the Chicago school system, mm-hmm. you want to get in a little early, you got to kind of make up your age, right? So you want to get in to the right school, to the, things like to the right system. You know, you, the, the <laughs> black women were always looking out. I say that, right? And so I didn't go to school in my immediate neighborhood. What this allowed me to do, 
um, was uh, they, they operated as two different hemispheres. Mm. I went to school in a predominantly white neighborhood. Mm. I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. Black it was Wild Hunters, Southside Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it forced me South to be <laughs> Southside. Forced me to be very self aware <laughs> at an early age. Mm. Right, answer a lot of questions about myself, but also relationship building skills. Mm-hmm. When he talks about Chicago. You know, I think about the Pullman Porters. I think about such a rich mm-hmm. legacy of entrepreneurship and not just hustlers, um, but real businessmen that own business, women and businesswomen that owned and prospered mm-hmm. in the south and west sides of Chicago. My father was the first man to teach me the word entrepreneur. Really? I can't say I knew what he was talking about yeah. when, you know, when he was, was telling me to, but I always had access. What was the example of that, of him bringing it up to you? Was it just like going to different businesses and places like that and him like showing you like, hey, son, this is, you know, so they own this. So he, to this day, he calls me 2.0. Um, <laughs> but I think it's because he watched my grandfather and his work mm-hmm. ethic, right? So you get your nine to five, you do your steady employment, but then you you grow, right? You provide value outside of your nine to five. And that was always his focus. So I can, my father is a network engineer by trade. Okay. But outside of that, uh, he would own an IT consulting business. He owned a trucking company. He got into real estate with a couple of his boys. And this is kind of what fueled my service mindedness when it Mm. comes to creating business, Mm -hmm. right? Value centric business models Mm -hmm. uh, where it's not just us, how we can benefit. How can we provide value to everyone in this room? community, right? You know, one to many versus a selfish approach to, to mm-hmm. entrepreneurship. Wow. So both of you have grown up there. Did you know each other growing up? We met at Howard University. <laughs> <laughs> but the connection that, that Terrence and I have, you would think that we've known, known each, each other, other since we were two months old. <laughs> That's crazy, though. Like, it's crazy how you end up gravitating towards the people that you're supposed to meet. So tell me how y'all ended up meeting at Howard. Yeah, so uh, Brandon was actually my first boss. Your first uh, boss? Yeah, he was my first boss. I never, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, he must have been pretty decent because y'all still hanging out together. Uh, yeah, he was all right. He was all right. <laughs> you know, don't do that. But um, so when I first got to, to Howard, I was young, right? Uh, I needed to make some money. And Brandon and another friend of ours, Joel, uh, they were running parties and promotions throughout D.C. Mm-hmm. My friends and I were throwing house parties and whatnot, just to scrap, right? Just yeah. to make some names. And he kind of tapped me one day and said, I think I got a better opportunity for you. Uh, <laughs> so this was kind of my first opportunity within hospitality, within the liquor and, and spirits business. And so this is kind of where we met. Brandon used to be the doorman. He used to charge guys $40, right? <laughs> that was his thing. He used to tell you couldn't get in. I was responsible for bringing people, right? Mm-hmm. Connecting individuals, really uniting folks and getting them in the club so they can, can drink. <laughs> yeah. Now, I got to ask y'all, you know I'm going to ask y'all. Yeah. You know, I was drinking interesting things in college. Uh-huh. And I got to imagine that y'all's palace at that time were not as refined as they might be tonight. So look, so look. So, so I got I got to ask y'all, look. y'all was over there drinking hypnotic and y'all was drinking super Hulk and y'all was for loco, you was I know. Listen, listen, listen. No, no, no. For loco was a DC thing. Like, I, like at Howard, you were going to the store and drinking a for loco. Now, there's no a, one should drink for loco. It, it should be illegal. There's a good three to four months of my life that I don't remember because of for loco. Uh, I, I, I firmly believe that we will be sitting on the couch. 30 years from now, see an infomercial that says, did you drink for loco? You might be entitled to a settlement. Um, it's definitely coming. Oh, my God. No, you brought up a really good point. We definitely 
in D.C., D.C. is a drinking city in general. Mm. It's an entertaining city. We like to have fun. We like to party. We mm-hmm. like to do all of that. And you definitely try a lot of different things. <laughs> My drink of choice was a French connection. Okay. He's bougie. He's bougie. <laughs> Hennessy, <laughs> Hennessy and Grand Marnier. Wow. And when I say... I had no business in the world drinking that at that young age. You drink one of those in your night. You talking about three months you don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mine was box wine. That was that was my. I didn't always have the palate that I have. it was, you know, that's kind of what led to that that curiosity, mm-hmm. really. Um, you you get what you can afford. <laughs> like, let's, absolutely, let's, absolutely. Let's, let's be honest Did about it. Did you think it was fancy at the time? At the though? time, yeah, because everybody else is drinking all that hard liquor. I'm <laughs> walking around my wine. Like, that was that was our thing, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it was box wine. I'm not ashamed to say it. Hey, I'm not mad at you. We all got to, you, know, you know. I may or may not have ice in it, too. Yeah, yeah, you know, if you really so. want to hey, 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 really hey, talk about I it. I know a couple people <laughs> that still rock with ice in it. I didn't know any better, right? Like, that's just how you enjoy it. Exactly. Enjoy how you, in the beginning until you know better. <laughs> until somebody show, you, you know better. You know enjoy better, how you, you enjoy it. Yes. He had some and box you, wine last night, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't let him fool y'all. Now, take me back to school for a little bit. What did each of you go to school for? What did you major in? What did you want to do? Was it you thought you wanted to go ahead and start businesses or were you, was your plan to kind of go into corporate and, and go that route? Uh, so I can take a, a step back. Jeremiah A. Wright was uh, who used to be the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Was one of my biggest influences for going to Howard University. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard a man speak so eloquently about blackness, speak so profoundly about black history. Mm-hmm. Um, just again, mentioning how I went to predominantly white schools, right? And counselors at that time, you know, not really advocating for HBCUs. So here I am seeing this man that's larger than life talk about all the great talent that's coming out of D.C. I'm like, I'm going there, I'm going right? There. But he would also talk about all the world changes, the leaders, mm-hmm. right, that came out of there. And so I thought that I wanted to be a lobbyist, a politician. Wow. Uh, so I majored in economics, Right. Uh, So we can talk about supply and demand, macro, micro, world economics, how you want. And I've always been interested in how psychology and sociology tied into business. Right. It humanizes business. So that was my thing. That was your thing. That was my thing. And what about you? So my answer is not as profound as Terrence's. (laughs) You went on a journey. (laughs) You know, as as a child. I remember dressing up wearing suits all the time. In high school, I had on ties and shirts, and everybody like, "Who are you? Forty already, where, where dog? Like, going? what? Are, where are you going?" <laughs> I had a briefcase at one point. And Wait, you was, you I was, don't, I don't you know. You thought you was a businessman. I, like, I thought I was about my business, <laughs> and I loved to have really good debates with people. <laughs> and people would say, "You would be a great lawyer." So I say, "You know what? I'm gonna be a lawyer." Hmm. Then I started doing more stuff. And I said, no, I love sports. I want to be a sports agent. <laughs> so I went to Howard, and I was Howard's first class for their sports management program. Wow. And that was great. And my first law class, sports law, Professor Hyde, amazing class, probably the only class I remember at Howard. <laughs> and through that process, I very quickly realized I do not want to be a lawyer. I don't want to take the bar. I don't want to do any of that. But I still have my interest and passion 
in hospitality. Mm. I still have my interest and passion in sports. Okay. So not I, in debating people. Not in debating people. <laughs> not in any of that. No, no, I <laughs> definitely like, in debating. I like to debate Terrence every day. <laughs> uh, so sports management, leisure studies was my major at Howard University. Right. And so what did you end up doing with that? I worked for the Wizards for a little mm-hmm. bit, and then I went to the Washington Nationals, mm-hmm. and I worked in their front office for about five seasons. And then after that, I went more to the restaurant side of things and became a restaurant consultant and operations manager of Grubhub. Hospitality is very big to me. I, I want a hospitality group. We will have a hospitality group one I day. I love it. Put so, that in there. Put that in the universe. It. How about you? So you, you wanted to be a lobbyist. What did you end up getting into before we started getting into the wine business? Uh, so I wanted to be a lobbyist and I needed a job. <laughs> and so I would go door to door selling POS systems uh, to different restaurants. And it was one of the most brutal things that I've ever done. One, I'm selling you something you already have. Hmm. All right, so, and so you're trying to convince them to convert to To convert yours. to this wild, ridiculous ideology, uh, now that I think about it. But it was foundational for me in my tech sales career. And so from there, I've worked for several different Fortune 500 companies. Um, Some that you may recognize is IBM uh, and latter uh, being LinkedIn. What I learned about Mm. myself is that I would show up in spaces and, you know, sometimes you shrink in Mm. certain spaces like that. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, everybody knows about code switching. Correct. Right? That's no mystery. We all do it subconsciously sometimes. Uh, and again, me being a hyper-aware individual, I remember telling my wife one day that I'm not really happy, you know, hmm. doing this. And we make a lot of money. Things are going great. But I'm um, finding it a struggle um, to flip yeah, my I'm laptop on right doing now. This, right. Right. You know, if I have to, you know, step into a space and talk to you about one more person about golf, you know, like, that's not my that's not my thing, right? And no disrespect to anybody who <laughs> really is passionate about golf. No disrespect it's, means all of the disrespect. But if I ever found myself... <laughs> all of it. Yeah, yeah. But if I ever found myself having to change or my voice gets a little right. higher, this might not be the space for me. Right. Uh, and I always wanted to be closer to purposeful work. So I remember one day I was on LinkedIn and uh, got a response from someone from LinkedIn. What I always tell people about that aspect of work is if I'm able to connect someone to opportunity, that's purposeful for me. So Hmm. what I do um, when I'm not, my life isn't consumed with Michael Lavelle is I help companies brand themselves connect with individuals who have the talents and resources that they need. So basically I make governments more attractive. And so if I can help one parent, one single mother, one father match with an opportunity that can improve their household and life, that's purposeful work for me. Mm. And um, that's really, you know, the, the, the journey the, that the you journey were on. I've been, I've been on. I resonate with that quite a bit, right? I think we've all been in certain environments where we felt like, man, this really ain't me. It's this really, it really doesn't feel right. You I don't know? care what that offer letter says, man. It's 90 days in, 120 days in, you're like, ah, like dog, I can't do they're it. They're not paying me enough. You know, to be quiet, to, to be, you know. <laughs> to deal with this? To yeah. deal with that. And right? not be myself? And not be myself. And everything I do is from a place of authenticity, mm-hmm. right? That's You see us up here, you know, like this now, and I know we'll talk about it, mm-hmm. but at one point, we would talk to distributors, we'd have a suit and tie on, I'm like, who are we doing this for? <laughs> right, you're like, this ain't how we show this up. This not how we show up, right? Like, and, and it doesn't change my knowledge and understanding of the business, so mm-hmm. you see us, you know, he's got some great shoes, I'm gonna get those later it. today, I but then, it. you know, we show up as ourselves, authentically. No, and that's, you know, that's a big thing of mine, you know, um, I got some friends here that they get on me about this, but um, a long time ago, I switched to a uniform, so y'all, you saw me yesterday what was I wearing this <laughs> mm-hmm. so the the interesting thing I have no judgment 
Because everybody that knows me knows I have a Michael Lavelle uniform. <laughs> I like that. I wear black jeans. I wear my Jordan ones, my Michael Lavelle T-shirt, you like the one I have on, and a Michael Lavelle hoodie. Yeah. So and I understand that. It's, you know, and it's about that authenticity part, right? It's I got to show up as who I am wherever I go. And if I'm not, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Why are we doing it? You who should never who have, are we trying to do this for? You should never have to shrink for opportunity. You should Absolutely always be not. increasing. Increasing. One of the things I wanted to also chat with you a little bit about before we get more into the origin story of the business was at a young age, you also, you know, you had a kid, right? And so that was another it's thing that you had man. to navigate. <laughs> it's a busy young man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had my daughter, Cassidy, when I was in high school, mm. uh, 16 years old, mm. and so part of that whole story of me wearing a suit and the briefcase and everything, because I, I had to be a lot growner and older at a younger age because my responsibilities were a lot different mm -hmm. than a lot of my peers. Mm -hmm. Hell, even some of my family members, older family members, my brother, who is eight years older than me, we had our daughters the same year. <laughs> my niece was born in February. My daughter's born in November. So that also was a very big push to go and have to be more responsible, mm -hmm. have to go and, and hold myself accountable. Blessed to be held accountable by my family and friends. You know, mm -hmm. Terrence held me accountable a few different times of things. So when Terrence says that I was his first boss, I had to work. You know, so I was when you in, came to school, you were like, I have to I actually have I, to provide for my daughter. My first party at Howard, I this thing called freshman week. Before I got on Howard's campus, I already had a party. <laughs> Republic Garden on U Street, and it was great because I needed to provide. I know. Republic <laughs> Gardens. At one point, I uh, throwing parties, worked at Target, worked at PNC Bank, and worked at Sunglass Hut. Come on, man. All at the same time while going to school still. So that definitely has been a blessing for me to mature in different ways and get different perspectives of life, good and bad. And the bad has always taught a lesson mm -hmm. um, to be a better man and a better father. Wow. Wow. So y'all, you've been navigating a lot on this journey, <laughs> safe to say. And you, you've taken this passion for hospitality um, and this passion for community, and you started to pull it into a direction. So tell me, how do we get into the wine business? Because I don't think it's any surprise to me to tell y'all I don't see a lot of us in this industry. So how do you decide, hey, we want to we wanna explore this? I really want Terrence to answer this question. But before he does, I'm going to give a, a quote of facts, some data that he, he shares a lot. Less than 1% of winemakers are black. So when you say there's not a lot, hmm. that's an understatement. Hmm. So, you know, for what Terrence and our partner Aaron did to create Michael Lavelle, I always look at them in awe to say, wow, the fact that you all had this, this idea is amazing. That's crystallizing to more than a dream. When we return, Brandon and Terrence decide to grow a legacy, but there are always growing pains along the way. What's up, Claim of Stories fam? If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard of Vistaprint, right? I mean, we've been doing a lot of incredible work together to inspire entrepreneurs of color, so we hope you're paying attention. 
Now, when it comes to printing things, and I mean just about anything for your business, whether it's stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats, Vistaprint's got you. They print just about everything. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claimer Stories podcast. So it's 2020, and the fellas decide they want to start making wine. I didn't have more of an understanding of wine at that time, but I could name several different cognacs, several different tequilas, several different vodkas to you. But I couldn't give you worldly knowledge about wine. Mm -hmm. As I got deeper, as we got deeper into this space, uh, we began to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Well, why does it taste like this? Why doesn't this space carry that wine? You know, why is the quality or experience here differs so much as I travel, whether it's good or bad? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're met with a certain amount of pretentiousness mm-hmm. when it comes to wine. You know, when you get to Michelin star restaurants, that should be an experience. You should leave there informed, but sometimes uh, Psalms can do a little bit of gatekeeping, right? You can feel judged by not knowing. Because you don't know. Because you don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, Aaron, Michael Code, my name is Terrence Lavelle Loeb, <laughs> we decided that legacy in wine was the direction that we were going to go in. We wanted to create a label that you could look like us, talk like us, that was inclusive of everyone. Mm-hmm. Right? If you know anything about the wine business, it is very antiquated. Uh, it's predominantly white, predominantly male. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so we wanted to create something that from the jump, Everyone, no matter what your walk of life is, what you look like, it is inclusive of all. And so we set out to do a mail. Come on now. So when you started this journey, right? So obviously you had these experiences at at the restaurant and whatnot. When did you start to get a more of an understanding of how the wine was made? Because, you know, for the most part, we might see labels and things like that. And we, you know, casual consumer don't really know the difference, right? So what pushes you all to go further and, and think like, oh, we actually want to go figure out how to make this? Well, Mistakes. (laughs) Mistakes. <laughs> really, I mean, and, and really because, you know, wine is of the earth. So we, we can start there, right? Really good wines. There's no formula for wine. There's a methodology. There's a science behind it. And once you start to understand that there's hundreds of different rosés in this category, you want to understand, well, how can I get mine to shine and stand out amongst those, right? Uh, even looking at Zinfandel, back in the day, my grandmother used to drink white Zinfandel, <laughs> That was her thing. Yep. But a lot of people don't know the history behind Zinfandel. So we look at that and say, how can we give it its just due? Hmm. Right? How can we give you the experience and knowledge to enjoy Zinfandel in its purest form and educate you from that, that, mm-hmm. that standpoint? And I also think representation was very big for us. Hmm. Again, going back to that stat, less than 1% of winemakers are black. So knowing that we have to learn Mm. We can't just have this thing because if we have it, how do we go and share this experience? How do we educate people? How do we continue it? How do we help the people that are coming? Back to what Terrence said with, with legacy, how do we build a legacy on this if we aren't doing the hard work to it? Mm-hmm. So that's where the challenge to really push ourselves and say, hey, how deep in this can we get? Yeah. 
and with any entrepreneur, you need to know every nut and bolt of your business. Right, absolutely. Right. You got to know what's going on. You got to know if what's going on. If you want to stay on. in business. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, allow you to create and not be a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when something goes wrong, you can't fix it. You can't speak to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that since the journey of this, we've had so many different scenarios um, where we've been forced to integrate and understand what makes our business successful. We couldn't leave that to somebody else mm. to take care of because that's not that's not a responsible entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about what was the first wine that y'all decided to make? What was that first wine? Our first wine was the Iris Rosé. The Michael Lavelle Iris Rosé was the mm. first. Uh, we knew that we wanted a wine that was different. Mm-hmm. It's not something that most people would expect. So most people, when you think of your first wine, you think of a red, you think of a white. You wanted something that could go and attract the demographic, our base demographic that we were positioning ourselves to go in and connect with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that journey like, right? Because I'm guessing y'all didn't have any winemaking experience when you're making these first cases. How did you go about that? Did you go partner with a vineyard? Like, tell me about that journey. Yeah, so... Exactly what we said. You know, we don't have a vineyard. Our family didn't come from that. So we went and did a lot of research. We did a lot of research, intentional, to find vintner partners that we could build with Mm. that would allow us to go and have our creative freedom, that would allow us to learn, but most importantly, that would teach us along the way. So trust Mm. was a big part. Mm. We know what our opportunities are. We, We have the black and whites to what we can and do what we can't. And we need that guidance uh, one of the things we always say, it's a very lonely industry. So it's not like we could pick up the phone and, and call. Because there aren't folks that, that look like us. Not anybody look like okay. us. And the ones that do look like us, they didn't know who <laughs> Terrence and Brandon were yet. So we couldn't <laughs> get on the phone and call them. So we had to find a, a vintner partner uh, that, again, allowed us to go and, and really learn and do things to the way that we wanted it from a taste profile uh, to consistency, to blending, to a lot of different factors. Mm. And how did y'all go about finding? Were y'all just cold calling people? It's it's a lot of cold calling. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, nights drinking uh, to find the right partnership. Uh, but it's also years in the making. Because uh, what you got to understand about this is when you look at that, that is a year in the making, right? Mm-hmm. We are in an agriculture business. It's an agricultural product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it takes time to arrive at that finished product, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not even talking about aging or anything like that. Literally just the harvest of it all, right? Then the crushing and pressing of it, uh, then the fermentation and the clarification, and then the aging and bottling and all that happens before it hits shelves. And, you know, you've got to have a distributor relationship to even get on shelves, right? Yeah. So there's just so many different steps that um, every time, you know, are you mind if I tell the story? No, please. Uh, so <laughs> we had no idea how to get wine on shelves. Mm-hmm. We literally would walk in the stores and say, you want to buy this wine? Mm. And they would say, well, uh, are you, you know, you got to have a distributor. And we're like, well, what is a distributor? Mm. You know, I can't just leave this so here. So you, you couldn't go to them and be like, hey, put this on your shelf. Uh, the United States of America operates on a three-tier system. So then there are different nuances per state. But let's just say largely operates mm-hmm. on a three-tier system, which means that somebody... Has, there's, there's a channel that my product has to go through before it hits shelves, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of times that is you pitching yourself to these middlemen so that they can invest in you. And coming from a place where you don't have the experience or the specific, you know, heritage in the industry as you will. And plus you don't look like the white men that they plus do business with. you're these young black men. With you know, at this point, Terrence might have a little afro. I, I had my little curly, <laughs> little curls, Jerry curls, somewhat braid. Who are these two brothers? Man, get out of here! 
<laughs> Goodness. So that's one of your initial hurdles, right? But also it's, it's in the process too, right? Because, you know, you're making this first case. Did you, like, how did that come out? And you find your first partner. How was it working with your first partnership from a winemaking standpoint? It was insightful. I want to say that in the very beginning, this is something that Aaron and I had held close to the chest. Okay. We didn't tell anybody that this is what we were going to do. Right. We never announced that we were going to uh, launch a wine company. But certain things, I mean, COVID happened. Right. We right. weren't able to fly and check on things as much as possible. We experienced a product. We saw a process. And kind of when I talk about the whole process, it takes months before it is actually finished. So come 2020, I think it's around March, February, March, things are ready to go. And we had the intention to launch on Juneteenth of 2020, mm. right? Uh, this is a symbol, if you know about liberation of Black Soul, for this was our liberation from the wine industry, right? That. This was us coming and saying that we have something to say. Mm. And what was most critical about that partnership is that we wanted to be direct to consumer. Mm. So because we did not have distributors, I got to get to your doorstep. Mm. I got to get you to experience this, right? right? And so how you got to figure out how to get in front of us. I remember conversations with Aaron uh, where we would say, hey, I just hope we sell five bottles. Because no one has ever, at this point, no one has not heard, they hadn't heard of this idea. They didn't know what was coming. about what y'all been doing, thing. right? You're not teasing stuff on Instagram. You're not. You don't know what's coming your way, right? <laughs> um, and so we launched on Juneteenth, and by the end of the month, we had sold hundreds of <laughs> bottles, right? From an eye, from an eye. And, and it was so affirming in that moment that we actually have. So then you've got repeat orders that come in, right? And so, um, you just talk about the early stages. It was just about finding the right partner to understand, hey, you know, we're getting ready to do something. One, they didn't have a direct-to-consumer arm. So we changed their whole business You're, model. The, the partner that you were the partner, with. right? Okay. They, we changed their whole model. They were hyper-local to Napa at the time. And so here we are coming in, trying to get them to do more work. Mm-hmm. And luckily, it, they believed in it. You know, we were able to make something happen. Wow. So now tell me on this journey, it can't all go smooth, right? Like, you know, along the way, you got to run into some even more hurdles in the in the process of just like the business side of things and dealing with people. Brandon, sound like you got something to get off your chest. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That first partner, I always say that we we're blessed to have had them because we had those challenges and those challenges made us better. That's one of my my key philosophies. How do you become better? If you're at a seven, let's get to a seven point two. And our first vintage, we had to look in the mirror and have a conversation with ourselves and say, "Hey, is this what we want the community to have? Does this meet our standard?" And we had to make certain decisions to change it and revamp it and make it better. And at that point, we were building trust with a partner who betrayed our trust. How so? You know, we had this new vintage, then we took a lot of time. Uh, our partner, Devin, who is a Psalm, he went and spent a lot of time there to really go and get this. Again, we knew the changes that we wanted. We were very intentional about that. So we went and made these changes. And our the new vintage of our rosé, in our minds, was impeccable. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we're still young. We're still young. We're still small. We don't have a boatload of money. We're self-funded. We're taking everything out of out of our pockets. And we have to do things logistically a certain way. We're piecing things together. So now when we make wine, we may go and say, hey, let's go and do X amount of gallons. And this gallons is going to last us for the year. Mm-hmm. We're going to bottle everything right now. We're going to label everything right now. And it's done. We weren't able to do that then. So we were going and saying, hey, we made 900 gallons of wine. But we can't bottle all 900 right now. All we could do is just get the fruit and make it. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do 
we're going to bottle a third of that. Okay. 300. We're going to keep the 600 there. You all hold on to it. We get to the point where we need that last 300. And Terrence and I were in Georgia for this amazing Mm. Black Wine Festival. Mm. Excited to showcase our wine to the black community, the black wine community. And we were moving the wine into a storage unit ourselves. We're very boots on the ground. We do everything ourselves. And some young brothers were outside and they helped us move it in. And uh, I said, hey, I'm going to give them some wine. Mm. I opened up a crate, get to a case, and I pull it out and it was a different color. So, so if you know anything about uh, rosé, it comes in different colors. Absolutely. Right? And then color is an indication of quality. I mm. wanted to dispel yes, that yes. rumor right yeah. out the gate, right? Um, but at the time, ours was a very rose quartz, uh, very um, transient in the light mm-hmm. type of thing. When Brandon pulled that bottle out, I kept holding up to the sun, holding He's up to the like, ground. I know like, this, this ain't right. This ain't right, right? This isn't <laughs> yeah. what we were presented with. Brandon actually... I cried. <laughs> I cried. Mm. I cried and mm. I called our vintner partner mm. and I say, hey... This is not my baby. At this point, I I had quit my job. So you were so all I was, the way I was in. This fully is, in there. We were, we were moving. Like, we had momentum. Huh. And I said, what is this? And we come to find out that they tapped into our inventory without telling us. Hmm. And then, instead of just communicating with us and saying, hey, blah, 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 they re-blended it to try to go and say, oh, no, here's your third. <laughs> I know um, my baby. I know what Devin worked in. You can't just cover it up. You can't cover this up. Yeah. And, and is that, and so that's not a common thing. And also on your agreement, the agreement's like, our product is our proprietary product. Don't touch that. As Terrence said, this is an earthly product. So there becomes a lot of different things within this when it comes to blending and such, where there's gray areas. Okay. But that was a lesson learned. That was the first lesson from a business standpoint where we decided to go and say, hey, to Terrence's point earlier, we need to control every part of this business. Mm-hmm. So our way, instead of having those two-thirds sitting in your facility when I'm in Chicago and Terrence in New York selling, let's go and bottle all 100% of this. So at that point, even if it is in your warehouse, it is in your storage center, it's bottled. It's court. You can't do anything to disrupt my business now. And we even went further. We went and said, hey, let's go get our own warehouses. Let's go and go and get our own fulfillment center. Wow. And that's when we truly started to learn the business. That's when it really got going on the compliance side of things and mm-hmm. learning more about liquor license, alcohol license. That's when we learned about bond. That's when we learned about storage. That's when we really, that's when things got fun. We <laughs> needed that You needed to that to get closer and really get into the weeds of the business. Now, I got to ask y'all, what y'all just said in my head sounded like money, 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 and money. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, how are you funding that, right? Like, is, are y'all self-funding? Are you, you going out and asking friends and family for them to invest in the business? Like, how are y'all paying for this? We have self-funded. We have self-funded. A mass majority of, of everything that we have done has come from the four of us out of our pockets, making a lot of sacrifice. And our families, our families have also made sacrifices along with us, you know, with four of us having good jobs at certain different points and savings accounts. We've gone and tapped into things. We've sold shares. We've done what we had to do because we all hmm. believed in Michael Lavelle, but most importantly, ourselves. Hmm. And when you see a community go and back that up, it makes you keep pushing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we have been very fortunate to create a profit-efficient business <laughs> uh, with the funds that we have. And it's not to say that we aren't approached by VCs all the time, right? Uh, but we are, in our minds, waiting for the right partner, 
Right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about a sum of money. It's about a vision that you're tapping into. Mm-hmm. It's about the understanding the nuance of the wine and spirits business, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, to this point, been super, super, super self-funded and blessed and fortunate because of that. Um, but we are scaling to the point that when we do decide to bring someone on, it'll make sense for everyone involved. Now, I got to ask you, what type of partner is that for you, right? When you think about who you would want to bring in, right? Who's that ideal person? Because, you know, they might be in the room. So I'm just curious. Well, <laughs> well, one of the things, Terrence and I are very big on relationships. We think in business, business works. It succeeds or it does not succeed based off of the relationship. Mm-hmm. So we always say we want a strategic partner, mm. someone that we can grow with that we can go and build things together intentionally, strategically. Um, someone that is well-versed either in the wine business or business that can come to us and say, hey, you all have done an amazing job doing A, B, C, D, but you all have not done E, F, and G yet. And here's how we do this. Let's build this together. I'm not only invested in Michael Lavelle because I want to see a profit at the end of the day. I'm invested in all four of you all. Mm. I'm invested in the mission that you all have to educate the community. I'm invested into the vision and mission that you all have to bridge art and wine. I'm invested into the vision that you all have to increase representation, not only in wine, but hospitality. Mm -hmm. So finding the right strategic partners that we can really build with uh, not just for us, but again, the community. Totally. Um, now, one of the things that y'all touched on a little bit was um, the name. It, backstage, we talked a little bit about the Iris Collection, right? Uh, tell me, what's, like, what's the story behind the Iris Collection? What does that mean to you all? Absolutely. So, um, the Iris Collection means, means everything to us. Uh, it is the first collection of Michael Lavelle wines. Um, when you look at this bottle... Uh, what you're looking at is a, a rendition of the iris flower. And if you know anything about the iris flower, it represents royalty, represents softness. Uh, this was actually an ode to the women in our lives, right? Our mothers, our sisters, our aunts. Uh, it's also an ode to Iris Rideau, who is the first African-American woman of Creole descent to own that. and operate a winery in the United States. I love that. Um, and so... Everything we do is from an educational format and in recognizing uh, that there are people who have laid you know, the role before us before you, right. you know, to get to where we are today. After that is our artist series. Mm. And so this is uh, really what really lights me up. is because when you think of Michael Lavelle, I want you to think of the intersection between art and wine, mm. right? Art and wine are both misunderstood. They're <laughs> obscure, right? It's kind of a thing that a lot of people are interested in but don't know how to approach it. Uh, and so we want to spark the conversation around, you know, different types of artistry, different types of varietals, and be that intersection for folks to consume. In their experiences. And I love that. I love that you're able to kind of bring those two things together because they do relate, right? Like it is, they're very similar in each other in the language and how they are expressed and how they are digested. Well, for us, it's super important that the design and packaging matches the integrity and goodness inside the bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think anything about retail psychology, there's about two things that matter most to people, right? It's that, can I afford it? <laughs> you know, for one, when I, if I don't know anything about your brand, can I afford it? Mm-hmm. And am I attracted to it? Hmm. Right. And if I can pull you in that way and for you to discover then how we connect with you, then we've, we've done our job. You've done well. your job. And that's the hardest part is getting someone to be attracted to, especially it's on the shelf, right? Like you, when you're not there, something else has to sell it. Form of manifestation, he would go to stores and just put the bottle on shelves. <laughs> Just to see how it stands out. I love that. Our partner, Aaron, did a a magnificent job of designing 
the bottle. Mm. You know, it's definitely a bottle that was intentional when he designed it. Minimalist. Mm-hmm. Consumer shop with their eyes. Most people, like Terrence said, you go and buy a bottle of wine. Most of these, you you don't know these varietals. You don't know how to pronounce these varietals. Most people go and say, hey, I want to drink a red. They go to the red section. Which one looks the prettiest? Is it sweet? <laughs> so we, we understood that. So I, I definitely say Aaron did a, a magnificent job of, of making that bottle art, art. for itself. Do you all just think of yourselves as a a black-owned wine label, or do you think of yourselves as a wine label that is black-owned? And if so, what's the difference? We are a wine label. We are a premium luxury wine label that happens to be black-owned. The most important thing to us is the quality of the juice, Hmm. the standard of Michael Lavelle, and making sure that we are providing that standard for ourselves, our family, but most importantly, again, the community. So we're very proud to be a Black-owned company, very mm-hmm. proud to be the youngest Black-owned wine label in the world right now. Uh, but we look at it and say, who's next? Who's behind us? And how do we continue to provide good quality juice? Hmm. Yeah. I got I to sit up for this one because this is important. I think Black is synonymous with creativity. I think it is synonymous with luxury. I think it's synonymous with craftsmanship. When I walk into a room, uh, you know one thing about me if you don't know anything else is that I am black. Um, <laughs> without any quarter, before, I open, my mouth, before <laughs> I open my mouth. Really? Right? Yeah. Right. I didn't know that. Um, Shoot. <laughs> and where I think there is opportunity is for our partners to realize that our products, I am not competing with, we are not competing with other black-owned brands. So that is, to me, when I hear black-owned, I hear a box and that this wine can and should be amongst its contemporaries, which is all of the wine business, right? When you label us and you put us on on menus, it's in the black box. Or sometimes you'll call and say, hey, we've already got a black-owned brand. What? Hmm. Why can't two, three, four exist, exist at the same on that time. same menu? Why do we have to be swapped out, hmm. right, uh, for something else? Well, why, don't dare take them down and put us up because that's right. not expanding our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're about. So um, for me, the opportunity is for us to command more out of our retailers, right? Mm-hmm. Not just because we're black, but because it is good. Because it's good. You have right. to challenge and be like, no, we have to think about this differently. You wouldn't do the same if it was just a white label that came. You wouldn't say we got too many white labels. Nobody ever <laughs> says that. You can look at the menu and see 30 mediocre wines and nobody ever <laughs> asks, you know, who made this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I, I want just to, to express that, that there's more than enough opportunity for all of us and that I wear black with a badge of honor, but it is also because we happen to be black, right? That is not all the totality of the product. Man, I love that, brothers. We're blessed that. to have a lot of restaurant placements. A lot of, unfortunately, this, this is an unfortunate thing. A lot of times when you go to restaurants, you don't see a lot of black brands, black or brown brands on menus. And we are, are very blessed, and it was very strategic to have a very big emphasis on what they call on-premise accounts. And on-premise means you drink it on-premise, off-premise, You drink it off the premise, so, you know, retailers. And one of the things that we do a lot, a lot of our restaurant partners, Michelin Star partners, mom and pops, we'll go and if we see that we are the only black or brown-owned wine or even spirit on the menu, we'll go to the beverage director. Hmm. We'll go to the owner and say, hey, thank you for supporting Michael Lavelle. Have you heard of this? 
Bring somebody else in the door but with you. I see that you picked up the Zinfandel. You picked up the Rosé. I know a brand in New York, Lovely Wines. She makes an amazing white. Hmm. I think that her wine will go very well on this menu. You're in New York restaurants. She would have a lot of support to come. And I think that conversation has to happen more. Mm-hmm. And not only, and I, I challenge everyone even here, not just us as owners, but as consumers. Mm-hmm. When we go to restaurants and we look at the menu and you don't see any black or brown owned brands, ask the question, why are there no black or brown owned products on this menu? Mm-hmm. This restaurant, most of your guests are black and brown. <laughs> So I think that's also a very big part um, of proud of being a, a black-owned brand. But again, a premium brand. So that's with good juice. That was Terrence and Brandon, co-founders of Michael Lavelle Wines. Find out more about Terrence and Brandon and get access to all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us. Stay up to date with our latest news following us on Instagram at Stories, or you can reach out with a message at hello at ClaimaStories.com. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fragozo, Pervy Patel, Natalie Yazzie, Jericho Trim, and the team over at DB Podcast. Original music provided by Adrian Anaya and vocals provided by Rosella. Special thanks to Jordan Dinwiddie, Cena Clark, Clint Blaine, and Damian Mitchell. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to the Claim of Stories podcast, powered by Vista. <laughs> <laughs>